Colossians chapter 2, and we'll read the first seven verses this morning. Paul writes, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for, ha- for those in Laodicea, as for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to, re- to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving." Lord, this is your word, and we thank you for it, that the grass withers, the flower fades, but your word stands forever. Your word is powerful and quick and sharp and able to do things that other words can't do, because it's your word. So we pray that you would take your word and work it deep into our hearts today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please be seated. We live in a world where the ideas of toil and struggle are things that we don't necessarily go after, that we don't necessarily pursue. Uh, We just live in a day and age where we can often just pay somebody to toil and struggle for us. You you think of uh, yard work or whatever the case may be, having the vehicle washed if you don't have teenagers anymore. You know, you can pay somebody to do it, as my children glare at me. Um, (laughs) We avoid toil and struggle, if we can. Sounds like we go after that. Yet we see this idea come up again and again. We saw it last week in the end of chapter 1. We see it again today. But if you think of the great stories in history, the great stories of countries or companies or people, they all involve toil and struggle. In fact, a good story does because we like the, the, the outcome of overcoming, that someone faced great adversity or that someone faced the seemingly impossible and they overcame. I think of few things good that come about without toil and struggle, and we can think of several examples of this. Well, Paul mentions the struggle, the toil again in verse 1. And as we mentioned last week, the word that he repeats uh, here uh, is the same word that we get our English word agonize from. Paul is agonizing. But we could ask, why is Paul agonizing? Or how is Paul agonizing? Maybe a better question to ask, particularly for the Colossians, because he's in prison. Now, understandably, prison would be agonizing. It's not like our prisons today. It would be a difficult Uh, way to live. But how was he struggling for the Colossians? If we look through the letters of Paul, including the book of Colossians, and we'll see this as we continue to work through this book, there are a number of ways that Paul describes struggling in particular. We see him struggling and suffering. Again, we've already seen that in chapter 1. We see that in Philippians 1.30 as well. We see him struggling in perseverance, struggling to persevere. See that in places like 2 Timothy 4 7. And we see him struggling in prayer. And this comes out later in Colossians when he is 
bolstering Epaphras' reputation. You remember Epaphras was the pastor from Colossae. He's visiting Paul in prison. He brings the report to Paul. Paul's now sending this letter back with Epaphras, and he's wanting to kind of strengthen Epaphras' work. And so he says a number of good things about him, and one of the things that he says is that he's laboring for them in prayer. So we could add to that list of ways that Paul describes struggling in the faith, things that we struggle for, but I want to look today at the struggle for prayer. He doesn't mention any of those things in this particular text, but it's implied, I think, in that he, one of the ways that we can assume that Paul is struggling for the Colossians while he's in prison is that he's praying for them. And it's not just implied, it's implied here, but it's expressed in other parts of the letter that this was something Paul took very seriously. Uh, he talks about praying without ceasing, praying night and day. He prayed for the people there. And prayer can be a struggle. Prayer can be a struggle for us. I think the number one reason, if we were all to take a poll, of what our greatest struggle in prayer is, is to make the time to pray. We get to the end of our day or the end of our week, and we look back and we think of how little we've prayed. Or maybe it's just me. But I, 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 things take over. Life carries on, moves on. I have great intentions, and I set aside time, and other interruptions come in. And yet we see a verse like 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. And I realize how little I measure up to that. But pray, it takes work to make time for prayer. Another struggle in prayer is the fight to believe. The battle is essentially to, be, is essentially to trust God. We uh, consider Hebrews approach boldly the throne of grace, right? And yet we struggle to believe that it matters, that God really listens or cares, that the God of the universe can hear my little bitty prayer, or we might be tempted to think that some other prayer is better heard uh, or more important or something in that degree. Or we might think that if God is sovereign, why do we pray? Can we really change God? He's, he's unchangeable. He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But we come to a passage like James 5, and we see that prayer does matter. Prayer does change things. Specifically, verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Somehow, in some way, and yes, there's great mystery to this, God chooses to work in and through our prayers. He listens he responds. And sometimes we struggle or we labor to believe that. The third way that we labor in prayer is probably the most serious, but it's also possibly the rarest. And that is the, the struggle against the spiritual realm. Paul tells us that our battle is not in the physical world. We don't put on physical armor and go around battling people. Our battle is in the spiritual world. And in fact, Paul uses the illustration of armor to describe the spiritual armor, including prayer, of how we fight that battle. He says in Ephesians 6, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And as you look back in your life, and you, as you've grown in Christ, I'm sure that you have seen an increasing awareness of a spiritual battle. It's not something that we talk about a lot, but it's real. We fight a spiritual war, and we do that primarily through prayer. 
And that becomes a great struggle. If you have ever prayed through darkness, if you have ever prayed through difficulty, if you've ever prayed through oppression, you know how difficult, how hard it is to believe, to fight on, to pray, to take God at His word, to trust His promises as the evil one whispers lies. This is spiritual warfare. So prayer is a struggle. And it's a struggle that Paul knew well and was no doubt engaged in while he was in prison praying for the Colossians. He said it in the opening verses of the letter. He said, from from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Paul is praying for these believers. And we see this verse, I've alluded to it, it's in several of his epistles, if not all of them. I, I didn't even think about looking to see if it was in all of them, but it's in most of them, this idea of praying without ceasing. I'm remembering your prayers night and day, I am praying for you. And then later at the end of this uh, book in Colossians, in chapter 4, he exhorts the Colossians to continue steadfastly to pray with a sense of earnestness, pray with power, which of course involves struggle. The whole idea of praying steadfastly is not pray with ease, it's to pray steadfastly, intentionally, ongoing with perseverance and persistence. This is toil, this is struggle, and it's a struggle within the spiritual realm. And so if you want to be and are a man or woman of prayer, know that the work of prayer is going to be that. It's going to be work. It's going to be labor. And it's going to take our time and it's going to take our energy, but it is also a labor of joy. And you who have prayed and seen God work know this. A lot of times we take prayer as an add-on. It's something that we pull out in a moment of crisis or something we tack on to a meal. Look at prayer as an actual labor, a work God has given you to do. And I know some of you pray like that because you tell me about it and you tell me specific ways that you pray and when you're praying. Uh, you're praying when you're, you're working, you're praying when you're gardening, you're praying when you're driving, using that time to pray. It's work, it takes intentionality. When your mind could just drift off and think about other things or fantasize, you're choosing to use that time to pray. Let me encourage us all to do that, to go boldly before the throne, to lift our requests up before God. The second way that we see laboring in this text is that Paul is laboring with Christ. So he's laboring in prayer, he's laboring with Christ in verses 2 to 5. Paul shows us that our, our labor, laboring is not in isolation. We're not designed to be living as islands unto ourselves. My uncle uh, posted an article this morning about some church in the virtual realm. And it was kind of a joke, you know, it was a real news article that someone's created this virtual realm. And I just responded back to him, that that's not church, you know. Uh, another pastor two weeks ago announced an app that was for people who didn't want to come to church. They could go to church on the app. And everybody's outcry was the same. That's not church. Because the church is the body of Christ, and it involves being together. It's being. Part of, part of our uh, union with Christ is our being, and it's being together with one another. We need each other. We're not designed in Christ to be isolated unto ourselves, and that's also true as we work together. Paul expresses his desire um, for the believers in Colossae. He also mentions the church in Laodicea, which was just next door, and they would have certainly gotten the same letter written to the Colossians. It would have been carried to them and read to them as well. And he expresses that he wants them to be knit together in love. 
he's encouraging them and he's encouraging and teaching them at the same time. Paul had a really good gift with this where he would instruct people and encourage them at the same time, which is not only something that um, we need the knowledge, we need the instruction, but we also need the encouragement. And when we can put those two things together, it's actually a beautiful model for how to grow in Christ. So he's doing that, encouraging them. Encouragement is being filled with courage, right? It's giving people hope. When people are discouraged, without courage, without hope, uh, when people are down, we, we lift them up, we build them up. That's encouraging. It implies being strengthened. And so he expresses his heart to see the believers there united in love, that there would be mutual care for one another, and also that there would be peace. Paul wants to see the peace of the church. He knows the purity of the church, the peace of the church, is what will protect it from these false teachers that are coming in, these Gnostics that are bringing in these new ideas. And so he's expressing his desire for that. But his goal doesn't stop there. It goes on. In fact, the goal of peace that he describes in, in, in this idea of purity is for them to understand that they don't need this extra experience that these Gnostics are teaching about. That it's actually in Christ and in Christ alone that they have everything they need. Look in verse 2. To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. That's a lot of big words packed in there. Maybe not how we speak from a day-to-day standpoint. But slow down and look at what he's saying here. Riches of full assurance... I mean, we could preach a sermon just on this verse alone of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Christ reveals God's mystery. The the, the plan of redemption hidden through ages past, prophesied about, not clearly understood in the Old Testament, but now shining bright in the person and work of Christ. Paul wants them to know the truth, specifically to know Christ. And his description of Jesus here is that he is God's mystery in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's the gospel. That good news that was whispered about in Genesis 3 is now being proclaimed loudly in Jesus. And then in verse 4, he says, "...so that no one may delude you with plausible arguments." Here Paul speaks again to this Gnostic teaching that's coming in, special knowledge, special experiences, all of this kind of thing, attempting to add to the finished work of Christ. That's what these Gnostics were doing. And Paul is saying to them, be firm in the knowledge of Christ because it's in Him alone that you will find all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What we need is not an extra experience, is not special mysterious knowledge or crafty ideas that people come up with. And let me just say that when someone comes up with something new that's never been thought of or heard of in all church history, be very inquisitive before buying into that. When someone comes up with something that's a new idea and they're trying to present it to you as something that you too need to grab on and experience, be very, very careful. And be especially careful. Be especially careful if that person's also asking to buy a new Gulfstream plane. Um, I, I realize that that's a little funny, but it's also very serious. This, this continues, I continue to see this, of these uh, heretics that are, in the name of the gospel, uh, just taking money from people for their own gain. And these are often the people that act in the same kind of Gnostic way, saying, you know, you get a special blessing, or I'm going to send you a special thing if you send some money, and you'll be blessed, and you'll have this special experience. 
Be very, very careful. Another way, let me summarize what Paul's saying here. Don't be deceived by these false teachers with their lofty speeches, sounds good to the ears, that seem so persuasive. Go after Christ. Know Him, lean into Him, lean on Him, pursue Him, because in Him is all of God's wisdom. All of God's wisdom. They don't have any special extra wisdom. All of God's wisdom is in Christ. That's where you'll find it. But it's work to know Christ. It's work to know Him. We don't just sit back on our haunches and gain this knowledge. We don't do it by coasting. We have to labor to know Christ. This idea is emphasized in verse 5 where Paul celebrates your good order and the firmness of your faith. Again, Paul is doing what I mentioned before, this model of both instructing them and encouraging them. He's acknowledging that them, then that they're already growing in their faith, in their unity together, in their orderliness He's saying what he is praying for is their spiritual growth. Now, so often it's easy for us to focus on the negative things in our own lives or in the lives of others, either what we're not doing or what we're doing wrong. But Paul shows us that we also need encouragement. And so if all of us need encouragement, and all of us do, and by the way, that's not a sign of weakness. Needing encouragement is not a sign of weakness. Somewhere somebody came up with that idea and so, you know, we have a lot of Christians who are trying just to just pull themselves up by their bootstraps and, and be strong. We all need encouragement. None of us are whole. We're all broken. We're all affected by sin. None of us have perfect strength. We all need encouragement. And so if that's true, we not only need to be able to give encouragement and be people that encourage. Build. When, when our kids were little, we quoted that verse all the time. Build each other up. Don't tear each other down. That's it. It's that simple. Even kids can get this. That we're not tearing each other down, but we're building one another up. So it's true that we not only need to be those kind of people, but we also need to be able to receive it. We need to be able to receive encouragement. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. Notice Paul does it there in Thessalonians as well instructing them what to do, but then he adds, as you are doing, encouraging them in their growth. And so may we be, continue to be a church that is not only firm in our faith, laboring to grow in our knowledge of Christ, but also encouraging one another in the growth that, that, that builds each other up. The third thing and the last thing about laboring is that we labor in thanksgiving. Now you say, Seth, you changed the words there. Paul says, abounding in thanksgiving but I, I'm going to help us see something that Thanksgiving sometimes takes work too. And originally, I didn't, I didn't bring, uh, the, I didn't lay this out knowing that this verse would be on Thanksgiving week. It, the Lord providentially worked it out. I'm grateful for that. Um, you know, when, when we're going through life, it's, it, it's easy to, to focus on the difficulties, the things that are not going the way that we want them or the things that are going wrong in our lives. And sometimes it's harder to see goodness, in our lives, the good things God has given us. We have to, to stop and slow down. But if we are rooted, if we are being built up and established in Christ, if we're walking in Him, then our tendency is going to be away from grumbling and complaining. Our, our, our natural tendency is to navel gaze, right? You know, my problems, oh, this is wrong and that is wrong and, and so forth. And when we do that, we spiral in on ourselves and we, and we literally, it's destructive, Grumbling, complaining, anger, jealousy, 
plug it in, whatever your sin of, uh, your, your flavor of, uh, of choice there is, we, we've all experienced this. And it doesn't, it doesn't come out of itself. It doesn't level itself out. We just continue to eat ourselves up. But what Thanksgiving does is, is it gets our minds off of ourselves and onto Christ, and it lifts ourselves from this tendency to spiral in. Now, we have Thanksgiving come up this week, and I've already mentioned um, this can be a wonderful time, but it can also be a challenging time. It can be challenging for a number of reasons. And so let's consider just a few ways that it may take work for us this week to be thankful. Some of us are going to encounter difficult family members. It may be someone who just gets on your last nerve and is obnoxious. It may be someone who's argumentative all the time. You know, I wondered if this would connect with you, but I'm seeing that it, it connects, right? Okay. We've all got that family member. There may be a severed relationship in your family that makes it difficult to go into the same room with someone. Or just, it's just awkward. Right. Travel conditions. Something about Thanksgiving, I think just the compressed amount of time, we're all going somewhere in a short amount of time, and so the roads just seem fuller, and the flights seem fuller, and so everyone's traveling, everything's busier. This, at least for some of us, um, really draws out the, uh, or reveals the tendency toward anger, um, especially because guess what? There will be people that are riding in the left lane. (laughs) They'll be out there, not realizing that the left lane is only for passing and that they need to move over. It'll take work to be thankful. Loneliness. Um, the, The holidays have a way of magnifying loneliness. And it may not be because you're alone alone. It may you may be in a crowd of people and feel alone but you feel alone. You're at a different station in life, possibly. Thanksgiving isn't what it used to be. Maybe everybody used to come to your house and no one comes to your house anymore. Or maybe it's, it's uh, you know, different from when it was when you were a kid when what I've learned was everybody just did everything for you and that's what made Thanksgiving fun. And now that when you're grown up, you have to do all the work. But whatever it is, it's different. Maybe this is the first Thanksgiving that you are going through after losing someone you love. And it makes it hard. Comparing. We do this all the time. Holidays are no exception. We see people's posts that look like Martha Stewart cooked the meal and decorated at the same time. And we think that our, somehow our Thanksgiving then is a failure. Um, maybe someone else's family just seems more gracious and kind and your family is dysfunctional and hurtful. And you compare and you kind of spiral inward again. We could add to this list so many more things, but... How are we to be thankful in times like this? How are we to face these challenges? Look at what Paul writes in verse 6. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, what is he directing them toward? He's directing them toward Jesus. And he says, how did you receive? Or I could say, he says, as you received him. We could ask, how does one receive Christ? It's by faith. This is a fight for faith. We can only come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so it's by faith that we are joined in Him and receive Him not merely as our Savior, but as our Lord. The two are not divided. We don't receive Jesus as Savior and later make Him our Lord. Jesus is Lord. It is who He is. He doesn't offer Himself as Savior and not Lord. 
He is the Lord. He is the sovereign one, the maker of all things, the king, our master. He reigns. And so for you and I, by faith, as we walk in and with the one who rules and reigns over all, it transforms how we respond to these challenges that we're going to face this week. We remember who we are in union with, who we are walking with, who is walking with us. Last week we looked at this idea of suffering. Uh, We've talked about it a number of times, and one of the things that I said was, as Christians we can expect to suffer, and this is true. Sometimes we suffer uniquely for our faith. But I want to say this, to be human is to suffer. All people suffer. No one gets out of this life, this out of this world, without suffering. So the difference then for us who are united by faith in Christ is in terms of how we respond to the suffering is because of who Jesus is as our Lord that we respond differently to the world, to the unbeliever. And it helps us understand then why Paul would say, I rejoice in my sufferings. Because Jesus is Lord, everything is different. The sufferings now have meaning and purpose, even though they don't feel good. And we can say that. We can say this hurts. We can say, take it away. I don't want to do this. I mean, Jesus said, Lord, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. But knowing that the sufferings have purpose. And this is revealed as we walk in Him, as we follow Him. So how are we to be thankful when we can't see, when it doesn't make sense? By keeping our eyes on Him. I've gone to Israel a number of times. As you know, Les and I were were planning to go there uh, to surf uh, uh, for years. And so I had just been, and and on one trip, led a team over there, had uh, a number of people that we were driving around, had the little bus, you know, the tour thing. And one night, the the local on-the-ground person said, hey, do you think that you can get them back to the hotel, or do I need to do you, do you need to you know, lead the way and you follow me? I said, no, 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 I know. You go down this way, and when you get to the end, there's the, we're, we were staying, for this portion of the trip, we were staying in the West Bank. We wanted to give people an experience of staying in the West Bank to understand that there are believers there, there are people there that know and love Jesus, and we wanted to, to spend some time with them. So we were doing this. And so I knew how to get back. I had it in my head. I'd done it you know, dozens of times. So we take off. It's late. We come over the hill to where the turn is, and there are people and police everywhere. They were having some kind of festival. Um, they shut down the roads. And if you've ever traveled um, in other parts of the world, or especially in the Middle East, there's none of this pulling up and rolling down your window and saying, hey, officer, I need, you know, there's, you follow the hand signals and the motions, and there's no discussion about that. So I did, and before long, I was, well, I didn't know where I was. And we were right on the border, so I could see checkpoints. I had no idea if I was in Israel or if I was in the West Bank. I, had, I just was completely confused. And so I called my friend, Danny, who's a Palestinian pastor, and I said, Danny, I'm, I'm lost. It's dark, not a lot of street lights, no GPS. And he said, describe what's around you. And so I did. He said, sit still, I'll be there in a minute. And so he pulled up, and when he pulled up, I rejoiced. Now... <laughs> I was still lost. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know how to get anywhere else, but I was filled with joy because I was not only the one lost, but I was responsible for all these people that I had brought with me, and they were trusting me and looking to me for this direction. And so I began to follow him. And the whole time I'm following him, I still don't know where I am, 
and it's, it's still, you know, uh, difficult to navigate and narrow streets and all of this, but I just kept following him. And guess where he took me? To the hotel. And we slept and we were fine. That's, that's what we do. We keep our eyes on Jesus. We don't know where we are. We don't know necessarily the way. Even as we're going along the way through the suffering, through the difficulty, through this week of Thanksgiving with dysfunctional family members, we don't know the way, but we keep our eyes on Jesus. And we follow Him. And so as we're being rooted and built up and established in the faith, then Thanksgiving overflows. It's what comes out of us. Because we know we're not the ones doing it. Even to this day, and I've seen Danny a number of times, this story always comes up. I'm still thankful for this story. Thanksgiving still abounds because of what he did for me in that moment. Thanksgiving overflows. So this week, when we're with our family, when we're with our friends, we are to keep our eyes on Christ, praying that it is He that moves and changes our hearts, that as we keep our eyes fixed on Him and not on our circumstances, notice He gives us Himself. He doesn't promise to change our circumstances or fix them. It's because of who He is that we can then be filled with joy. And thanksgiving can then overflow. Uh, One writer says this, I think it's very helpful, to be bursting with thankfulness is a true witness of the Spirit within us. For the voice of thanksgiving speaks without ceasing of the goodness of God. It claims nothing. It sees no merit in man's receiving, but only in God's giving. It marvels at His mercy. It is the language of joy just because it need look no longer to its own resources. What a relief. It is an expression of dependence on another. It is the speech of the psalmist and is the natural tongue of the apostles and it is also heard on the lips of the weakest Christian on his knees. We all have so much to be thankful for. So this week, let us consider all that Christ has done for us, fixing our eyes on Him, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, that we could be right with God. Let's remember that Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse Himself. And let's consider that Jesus our Lord came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. May we be filled with thanksgiving, that we could sing in our hearts, Worthy are you, Jesus, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts are filled with thankfulness, but we pray that you would fill them even more, that you would cause thanksgiving to abound and to overflow, that even when being thankful is work, is labor, that you would work that in us. Lord, cause us to be willing to labor in prayer. Cause us to recognize that we don't labor alone, but we're laboring with you and you are empowering us. Lord, lead us to work toward being thankful people. And again, I pray that we, as we go out, that we would be those conduits of grace. That we would be uh, just blessing to family members, friends, mindful of the needs of others before 
our own needs. Would you do this work for your glory and your name's sake, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.